0: Friends, welcome back to the Sacred Romance series that we are airing here on the Ransomed Heart podcast. These are conference tapes that were recorded back in the late 1990s, actually in the year before Brent's death. And so this week, part three, you get to hear Brent Curtis again talking about God as our ageless romancer. Well, the unknown romancing or the message of the arrows, the two revelations that John and I spoke about last night that come to all of our hearts early on from the time we're young children, the one message, the sense that there is a great romance that we are all part of, that comes to us in our childhood games and adventures, that comes to us through our friendships, the ones that stay with us all of our lives, that comes through just looking at the mountains on a morning like this, Something very wonderful woos our hearts. The second message, the one that comes in darker shades and hues, that comes out of the pain and disappointment that we've all suffered on this side of the fall, that's the second message that comes to all of our hearts early on. And the question is, how should we live? Should we keep our hearts open to the romance or... Should we concentrate on protecting ourselves from the arrows? And God might help us resolve that dilemma if we really knew that we could trust Him. And that's where uh, a certain other part to the plot of the sacred romance comes to play. In the outer story that we all live in, particularly those of us who have been in the church for quite a while, We know that God is good, and we we really do know that, don't we? Somewhere in our heads, we know that Christ died for us out of his love for us. We know that God is preparing something wonderful. We really do believe all of that in our heads in a genuine way. And yet, so many times, there is another story that goes on in all of our hearts that's more hidden. I've been a counselor for 10 years now, and sooner or later on the journey... Traveling with anyone on their story a real question comes up Which I'll talk about in a moment But the question has to do with God's heart and his intentions Towards us as individuals. God doesn't work with us as masses mostly does he works with us individually scripture tells us that God knows and thinks of us calls us by name So the question is, in each of our heart stories, what is it that goes on as we think of asking God to help us reconcile these two messages? As we think of trying to live with an open and trusting heart. As uh, I mentioned last night, I started out life in New Jersey on the farm, where I talked about the creek side. When we were eight years old, my stepdad got a job at Texas A&M University down in College Station. So we moved down there, got on my first plane ever. Back then they were prop planes, believe it or not. Gosh, I'm so old these days. Uh, flew down. First day at school was at David C. Crockett Elementary School in Bryan, Texas. And I learned in about the first two weeks I was there that there had been this thing that happened called the Civil War. And it was still going on. And it wasn't... Uh, The North had not won yet. (laughs) There were about four of us from northern states at Davy Crockett Elementary School, and there was this game that the sixth graders would play. I was in fourth grade at the time. They would line us up on one end of the playground, and they would get on the other end, and unlike the actual Civil War where the Union infantry always outnumbered the Southern Army, The odds were about 40 to 4, or maybe 400 to 4. I can't remember because I was always so filled with terror. Well, someone would give the battle cry, and the armies of the Confederacy would attack us, lined up against the chain-linked fence, paralyzed with fear. They would capture us and take us to this large mulch pile surrounded by chicken wire, where one of the sixth graders, a boy, I still remember his name and his face, Jimmy, and even though he was in sixth grade, I would guess that he weighed about 150 or 60 pounds, a real big kid. So one by one, they would take us prisoners of war and throw us over the chicken wire into the leaf pile, and Jimmy would sit on us. And once you got thrown in and Jimmy sat on you, you disappeared. I mean, you no longer were in view of teachers, parents, other students. You were just down there somewhere. One day, my one friend uh, named Terry from Ohio got thrown in and Jimmy sat on him so long, I was just afraid Terry was dead and I finally yelled out, let him up, he's gonna die. So Jimmy got up and with the best bad guy smile, said, okay, you come in and take his place. So my guards threw me in And again, out of sheer terror, before I landed, I was up over the chicken wire and was gone, ran to the other end of the playground just hoping I could make it to the bell. The thing about that is there never seemed to be any teachers on duty out on the playground, or maybe if they were, they were Confederate teachers. (laughs) No one ever seemed to come to our rescue, and I just remember that fall just being filled with terror every day. And of course, all of us have stories like that, some much worse than this one. And going on for years when it involved family or peers or uh, long-term relationships, and the seeming lack of rescue from these things and the fact that they're allowed to go on the way they do brings up a real question in our hearts about God's intention towards us. Sometimes we never deal with that question for years and years. We never let the light of day quite hit it, even long after we become Christians or begin a journey with God. We kind of cover the question up with rationalizations that let God off the hook, literally. It's easy to reason that Jimmy and those sixth graders were just bad. You know, they weren't raised in very good homes, that kind of thing. And of course, maybe that was even a little bit true that Jimmy had some problems at his home. But even so, the question that goes on in our hearts, underneath what we say we believe in our head, goes something like this. God, do you really care for me? Do you really know what's going on in my life? Blaise Pascal in his Pensees, says that the heart has its reasons, that reason knows not of. And to really be taking our spiritual journey in any good way at all, we need to be listening to the things that our heart tells us about God, our fears of Him, our questions about Him. What's under that question, God, do you care for me, is all of our personal stories, isn't it? Often punctuated by the message of the arrows, parents who were sometimes emotionally absent, nights going to bed without any words or hugs, ears that were too big, noses that were too small, others chosen for playground games while we stood there waiting to be shamed, hoping we wouldn't be last. And prayers about all of those things, at least the way we knew how to pray as children, seemingly met with silence. Embedded down in our hearts, everyone, deep down where the story really forms, are places that are so well-guarded that the questions that are there, we don't allow to come to the surface, often until long into our Christian journey. Questions like, God, why do you allow these things to happen to me? Last night, in the middle of the night, I felt like somebody grabbed me in my bed. I was in a different room than John, so it wasn't him. And I don't know what it was, but I needed a good night's sleep. And I was thinking, and I couldn't go to sleep the rest of the night. And I was thinking, God, couldn't you at least give me a good night's sleep so I could talk well tomorrow? That's a small thing. But things like that, God, why did you make me like this? Why didn't you give me a a nose a little bit longer than you did? Why did you make me so open to shaming out in this world? What will you allow to happen next? In the places of our heart, we really believe sometimes that God's the one who did not protect us from guys like Jimmy or he even perpetrated those events upon us. Our questions about him make us begin to live with a deep apprehension that clings anxiously to the inner depths of our hearts when we bother to go there. Do you care for me, God, really? Do you really know what I struggle with in my life, those are the questions that have shipwrecked many of our hearts, leaving them grounded on reefs of pain and doubt. And until we stop and wrestle with those questions in our hearts, our heart refuses to go with us any further on the spiritual journey. It just stops dead in its tracks. And we have to move our spiritual quest just to our head. That's happened to a lot of us. A lot of us live for years in that state. The things that happen to us, everyone, often suggest that the real script that God is writing as the playwright, as the author of the story that we're all living in, is that God is indifferent rather than God is love. If we think of the the story of Job, uh, that's very familiar to us, but I'd like to go there for a moment again because it's such a striking picture. It's a picture behind the scenes of God, the author, developing a plot line and actually allowing the villain in the story to be a very essential part of that plot line. You remember it. It was a scene in heaven, and all the angels were coming before the throne of God. And on this particular day, Satan came, and God said, Where have you been, Satan? And he said, Going to and fro out on the face of the earth. And God says, and listen to this line, Have you considered my servant Job? how he follows me fearlessly and with great integrity of heart in everything that he says and does. And Satan says, well, sure, but why wouldn't he? It works for him, doesn't it? Isn't he the wealthiest guy in those parts? Doesn't he have all kinds of sheep and flocks and children? And uh, you've blessed him until there's no more to bless. Why wouldn't he follow you? And God says, okay, well, what's your point, Satan? Satan. And Satan says, well, take some of that away from him and see what he does then. And God said, well, all right, take from him what you will, but don't touch his body. And so Satan went down. And you remember the story? Many of Job's children were killed. His flocks and herds were stolen. His home was burned. His wealth was literally destroyed. And another day, Satan came again before the throne of God. And God said, Satan, where have you been? And Satan said, out, going to and fro over the face of the earth. And listen again to God's question. Well, Satan, have you considered my servant Job? How even though you raised me against him without a cause, he still follows me in the integrity of his heart. Do you see that? And Satan says, well, sure, but skin for skin. Touch his body and see what he does then. See how long he follows you. And so God, the author of the play, says, okay, go out and do what you will to his body, but you may not take his life. Small comfort at this point, isn't it? And in this scene, we find Job sitting on the ash heap, scraping the sores and boils, as his wife stands there taunting him, saying, you fool, are you still holding on to your integrity? Why not simply curse God and die? What she was basically saying is there's nothing in this God business for us any longer. Why don't you just give up on it and stop sitting here in the integrity of your heart, wondering what's going on in the play that God has written for you? An amazing story. And Job was a God-fearing man, and yet there was something even before all this happened in his heart that suspected that worshiping, following God didn't exactly mean things were going to be safe. Remember his sentence after all this came upon him, the question or the thing that he said, I knew it. What I feared and what I dreaded has finally happened. In other words, even before the disaster, there was something going on in the story of his heart that said, God, I don't know. It's good. I love you. I want to follow you. But I don't quite know what you're all about. And it came to pass. What God did to Job, in my mind, is just an amazing thing. When Job's friends finally come along, you know, his counselors, Job was kind of the respected spiritual man in the community. His friends came along. They did have the good sense to sit with him for seven days in just silence. I don't remember that myself as a counselor more often, probably. But then they started to talk. And basically what they said was along this lines, Eliphaz says, Job, you've been our man. You had this God business down pat. We were watching you to see how you did it. And since all this has happened to you, you must have sinned. There's no other explanation for this because you know how the religion business works, right? If you sin, things go badly. If you don't sin, things go well. And since things are going rather badly for you, Job, you must have sinned. Why don't you just confess and get it over with? And of course, Job refuses to go that direction because he knows that there's something more going on than this. He doesn't know what, but he begins to wrestle with God about it. Remember, he goes to God and says things like, God, are you bored up in heaven? Is this the best that you have to do with your time and to mess with my life? If you were going to do this to me, why did you not give my mother an abortion before I was ever even born? What are you doing? I want to argue with you. I want to argue face to face. That's Job's demeanor. His friends, on the other hand, were kind of going along with a little more familiar household God religion that was so prevalent in the Middle East back in those times. In Mesopotamia, everybody kind of had their own household God. It was usually a little statue of clay or wood or silver that sat up on a shelf. And each God had its own ritual. You just had to do A, B, and C for whatever reason. Didn't know gods are capricious, right? but as long as you did it the way that God wanted, you would be blessed. And that was about all the questions anybody asked about their religion. Do what the God wants, then you'll get blessed. Job and Job's friends in particular were not prepared to think that they were in a much bigger story than that. What Job experienced as indifference or capriciousness on God's part, because we have the other part of the story, Really turns out to be God writing him a very dangerous and central role in the play, doesn't it? It's kind of like a policeman out in New York City, maybe in one of the worst neighborhoods, having a gang of thugs walk down the street. And he says, Guys, come on over here. Have you noticed that family of tourists from Ohio? Have you noticed how they walk down the streets well dressed? They don't spit on the sidewalk, they don't litter, they obey the laws. Have you noticed what law-abiding citizens are like? Why don't you go test their hearts? Go and steal everything they have and beat them up and maybe even kill one of the children and see if they don't just keep following the law. I kind of trust that they will. Isn't that kind of what God did to Job? That is a very large part in the play, and it's the kind of a part that God has written for all of us. But we often experience that as simply indifference on his part, or he's kind of busy somewhere else in the universe maybe, so, or maybe we've just done something wrong and we need to be a little bit more careful in our lifestyle. I'm almost filled sometimes with anger when I think of what God did to Job, as well as quite a bit of anxiety. It kind of makes me want to, get into another play, a little off-Broadway story called God Helps Brent Become Wealthy, Healthy and Wise While Living a Quiet Life. You know, something where I could have a little bit of control over the script, a little smaller story than whatever this dangerous drama is that God is writing that we seem to have such a big part on. There's something frightening about being in a play, everyone, where... The director may allow the plot to descend on your character from a totally unknown direction, a direction that may cause you deep emotional or even physical harm, right? Sort of like having the stage lights dropped on your head without anybody warning you it's going to happen. You know, God is the author and the playwright of the story we're living in often seems to use up characters like trailer courts in tornado season. You know how you see that on the news, whenever there's bad weather, it's always the trailer courts that God goes for. But when you see the devastation from those scenes, that often feels like the kind of play we're living in. tells us in the Psalms, notably, that he cares about us and that he's concerned about our plight and that our tormentors will be judged, but he still calls us firmly to our marks, regardless of disease or calamity or age or sex or even strength. He comes to Job in the midst of all his loss and pain. Remember when he was sitting on the ash heap about ready to die? And what does God do? Does he bring him cool drinks? And does he put his hand on his cheek? No, he says, Job, stand up. Tighten your belt. You've been wanting to ask me some questions, so here I am. I'm going to talk to you like a man. What do you feel, especially as men, when you hear that? part of me, I have to admit, feels respected by that whole direction. But there's another part of me, kind of maybe more the whiny part, I guess, that wants to say, how unfeeling and cold. Don't you see what I'm going through here? Can't you even sympathize a little bit? God comes to Jeremiah and after calling him to be the prophet of hard sayings to Israel, basically telling him, no one's going to listen to your message, but I still want you to give it. And, uh, Jeremiah says, Sovereign Lord, I don't know how to speak. I'm only a child. He was only about 13 when God came. But the Lord said to me, Don't say I'm only a child, Jeremiah. You must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. And don't be afraid of them, for I am with you and I will rescue you. We understand that God is saying that Jeremiah is going to do these things through dependence on his strength and provision and that God will rescue him. But there's something about God's rescues that makes them seem a little less timely than dialing 911, isn't there? He leaves Abraham with a knife raised, ready to plunge it into Isaac's heart, and Isaac waiting for the knife to descend before he finally says stop. He leaves Joseph languishing for years in an Egyptian prison. He allows the Israelites to suffer for 400 years of bondage under the Egyptians, and the same Israelites backed against the Red Sea with Pharaoh's chariots thundering down on them. He abandons Jesus to the cross in spite of Jesus' request for another way to do this and doesn't rescue him at all. And then there is us who, along with the saints under heaven's very altar that Revelations gives us a picture of, even now, grown under the weight of so many things gone wrong, waiting for that same Jesus to return and sweep us up with him in power and in glory. And there's something in our hearts underneath everything else that says, how long, O Lord? In fact, God calls us to battles where the deck appears to be stacked in favor of those who are his enemies and ours, just to increase the drama of the play. Remember the kind of military leader that God is? The Israelites are about ready to attack a fortified city with well-defended by several thousand soldiers. And God's strategy, his tactics is, let's get rid of most of our army and just use about 300 men. That's the way God does things, just to increase the drama of the play. Some of you have read to your children, or perhaps when you were children, it was read to you, The Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Remember when Lucy and Peter and uh, Susan and Edmund first go into Narnia, it's already under the spell of the White Witch, and it's always winter, but never Christmas. Uh, The White Witch spends her spare time turning the inhabitants into lawn statuary. And at this point, where everything is almost lost, God brings four children into the battle, or Aslan does, the great lion, who is a figure of Christ. And the four children meet up with this couple called the beavers, and they're saying, gosh, it looks like things are going pretty bad here. And the beavers say, well, never fear, it's almost spring. Aslan is on the move, and he intends for you to actually rule with him in the city of Ker-Paravel, but how is that all going to happen? And so the children are a little curious about this lion that they're going to be following and going to be serving, and they're asking the beavers about it. And the conversation goes like this. Is he a man? asked Lucy. Aslan, a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he's the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who's the king of the beasts? "'Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion.'" "'Ooh,' said Susan. "'I thought he was a man. "'Is he quite safe? "'I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion.'" "'That you will, dearie, and no mistake,' said Mrs. Beaver. "'If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan "'without their knees knocking, "'they're either braver than most or just plain silly.'" "'Then he isn't safe?' asked Lucy." Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver is telling you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And that's such a powerful picture of God, the author of the story. He is not safe at all. When we were young, most of us loved adventure, but there's something about the unknown that draws us, which is why we like stories so much. But I like to leave the theater at the end of the play, knowing that the plot has kind of been resolved by the characters on the screen. I don't want to be dumped into a plot where the stakes are so life and death high, and God rarely, if ever, yells cut, just as the dangerous or painful scene descends upon my character. No stunt double comes on the set to take our place. The director doesn't say, Brent, John, Sally, Mary, come on over to your trailer, have some lemonade. Let the stunt man handle this. He calls us firmly to our marks regardless and says, I believe in you. You can do it. Sometimes we wonder if God is the hero of the play we're in, is ever going to show up to rescue us at all, don't we? My family, my boys uh, in particular, we all like home improvement. That's kind of our end-of-the-day debrief, we sit there and watch uh, Tim and Jill do their man-woman thing, and, you know, of course there's the whole byplay of what's going on to make a home a good one behind the Tool Time show, but most of us would like to picture God, or at least I would sometimes, like Al on Home Improvement. Does everybody know Al? He's Tim's workmate, and of course Tim is always doing these blunders and electrocuting himself and wounding himself and gluing his head to tables, but Al wears these flannel shirts, has a very carefully trimmed beard, always has the proper tools laid out ahead of time, wears safety goggles, knows step-by-step step exactly how the whole thing is gonna proceed. Don't you wish God were kind of like that? But the way he actually feels sometimes is more kind of like you know Mel Gibson on the old Lethal Weapon movies where he's diving off of 7th story balconies into swimming pools and looking back saying, well, come on, Brent, aren't you coming? And my thought is, no. I'll watch and see how you make out first. Or like the old Raiders of the Lost Ark movies, you know, where we're kind of seduced in a good way. This kind of neat to be part of this adventure, this heroic thing going on, and yet we find ourselves hung out over pits of snakes, wondering how it's all going to end. In fact, one of Satan's most powerful whisperings to us, I think, you all, is that we are expendable. Oh, well, sure, God may uh, care for us. God may think we're significant, but only in the way that Napoleon kind of thought the Grand Army was significant in the Russian invasion. As soon as things started going bad, he got in the carriage and went back to France, leaving the Grand Army to make its way back the best way it could. Marshal Ney, who kind of led that retreat, was one of my relatives, that's my claim to fame, a relative who led one of the most famous retreats in all of the history of the world. (laughs) To all of these charges that we bring before God, he's basically unrepentant, isn't he? Has God ever come to any of you all in the middle of the night and apologized for the things that he's brought into your life? I don't remember that, if it's ever happened. God's response to us when we protest, it seems to be along the lines of, I am who I am. I do what I do. I'm good. What are you going to do with me? And so we're left to wrestle in our hearts with this author who's writing this part for us that sometimes seems so confusing and fearful. Ironically, at the end of his discussion with God, Job picks himself up and repents and says, Oh, I now I get it. God, now that you've shown up, I was foolish to have ever had doubts. And then an amazing thing, after Job has been arguing with him, wrestling with him through all of these chapters in the book, God goes to Job's friends who had been just espousing the kind of religious party line. If you do what God says, if you follow the ritual, if you play the game, things will go well. If you don't, they won't. He goes to them and says, You do not know me, and I am going to have my friend, Job, pray for you. Being the friend of God means something about wrestling with him in our hearts, something about being willing to contend with him, to struggle, to ask him questions. Last night, John quoted the line about, uh, we can only have answers that matter when we are willing to ask questions that come out of the depths of our hearts. And that's how God thinks of us as friends when we're willing to come and wrestle with him. Still, faced with a message of the arrows and a part that seems too big that God, the cosmic playwright, insists is ours with little clarity on the meaning and the relationship of our scenes and our character to the larger play going on, it does appear more than sensible to kind of opt out and go off-Broadway, doesn't it? just become more religious or more legalistic or maybe just kind of go through the motions and try to find life wherever else we can. What's your play that you kind of use as a backup plan? We all have one, don't we? There's so many ways I know that my hope is in God, yes, but really it's in this thing over here, just in case God gets too dangerous. What do you tend to use for that? The question in all of our hearts, everyone, is what is this drama God has dropped us in the middle of anyway? What act of the play are we in? And what are our scenes, mine and yours, have to do with the larger story being told? Is our well-being even a consideration in the plot? We wonder. Probably many of you have seen the, the movie Braveheart. As we begin to think about what God has in mind in inviting us into these big battles, you remember that Braveheart is the story of the uh, Scottish patriot, William Wallace, who stood up against the English for the freedom of his country. He was defeated and killed, betrayed, basically, by his own people. But watching him, Robert the Bruce, who's the son of the old Scottish king, sees something about William Wallace's life that draws him. And he goes to his father, the old king, who is just being eaten alive by this disease on the outside. And you get the picture very clearly that his soul is also being eaten alive by the disease of always trying to live in a smaller story, playing politics with the English, always hedging his bets, always making the compromise to see how he could hold on to life. And his son, Robert the Bruce is trying to find his heart as a young man. And his father is telling him, you got to play the game. you got to stay in the small story and play your cards where they best fit. But Robert the Bruce is saying, but father, men follow William Wallace and would give up their lives for him. I want to have men follow me like that. I don't want to lose heart. There seems to be something about the way we're made, everyone, that is made literally to live in a large, dangerous drama. And when we try to get out of that drama, our souls begin to atrophy. We literally begin to fade away, to dim from who we were meant to be. Maria Rilke, the German poet, has a wonderful poem called The Man Watching, and it goes like this. He says what we choose to fight is so tiny and what fights with us is so great. When we win it's with small things and the triumph itself makes us small. What is extraordinary and eternal does not want to be bent by us. This is how a man finds life, by being defeated decisively by constantly greater being. Is that part of what God's doing as He gives enemies to each of us that overwhelm us, is birthing us into life? Like it or not, we're made for a larger drama as much as we're made to breathe air. That's the play we're in. And we can't get out of it unless we literally want to kill our hearts. Remember the two disciples on the Emmaus Road when Jesus came and spoke to them after his resurrection? And later they said, We should have known it was Jesus. Didn't our hearts burn within us? What an amazing sentence. Didn't our hearts leap to life like a fire that's been resting in embers? But when we heard words of life, when we heard a call to battle that we were made for, something in us came alive. Jesus knows that about us. We are made for a very large drama. The battles that God calls us to, everyone, the the woundings and the cripplings of soul and sometimes body we receive cannot be ascribed to our sin and our foolishness solely, or even the sin and foolishness of others. Remember when Jesus and the disciples were on the road one day and they came on a man that had been born blind And the disciples said, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents? Still practicing the old household God religion. And Jesus said, no, guys, man, you're in a bigger drama than that. Neither this man sinned nor his parents, but he was born blind that God's glory might be revealed. And with that, he spat on the ground, made mud, placed it on the man's eyes, and the man was healed. Many of us, even as we sit here today, haven't yet received God's healing. And the display of God's works through our wounds and losses, many of you probably think of them as you sit here. Our wounds and losses and sufferings, God's glory through them has not yet been revealed and may not be until heaven itself. And so we often sit and groan and wonder about the ways of God's redemption. Sometimes my notes make sense, and sometimes I wonder, who wrote these? (laughs) There's one other thing going on that God knows about us all that has to do with the dangerous plots that he drops us into. Most of us tell ourselves that our main difficulty in life is just maybe that Others don't love well enough. If others around us, our family, our friends, just loved us a little better, and well, yeah, okay. If we loved a little better ourselves, things would be okay. Things would be just right. We rarely tell ourselves that we are literally committed to the ways of death. But that's what the Scripture says, isn't it? Paul says in Romans, there's not one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands and who really seeks after God. Everyone has turned away. Proverbs says there's a way that seems right to us to live, but the end of it leads to death. And what God knows about us is that the small stories that we try to live in, the stories of control and safety and politics and heart disconnection, will literally cost us our eternal souls. And he is fiercely determined to disrupt us out of those stories back into the larger play. And he will use everything at his disposal to make that happen. Remember the story of Jacob, which is one of the more complete stories that we get in the scripture, how God used both crippling and blessing to disrupt Jacob, out of being kind of a manipulative mama's boy, which is where he started out, into a man who was very humbly grateful for all of God's blessings in his life. He wrestles with Jacob all night long as Jacob asks for a blessing and won't give it to him. Remember when Jesus appeared as an angel and wrestled with Jacob until dawn? Then at dawn... He puts Jacob's hip out of joint just to show him, Jacob, I could have done this any time. And then he gives him the blessing. God is a very fierce redeemer. Frederick Beekner has a novel called The Son of Laughter that's really the story of Jacob. And I just want to end by reading a line from that book. Jacob is on his way home again now, back to the very place he started out again. He's just gone through the thing where his sons Simeon and Levi have killed Hamor and Shechem for the rape of their sister Dinah, took things into their own hands. And Jacob was going to have them sacrifice to cleanse his family of this sin. And God said, no, don't do that. Here, go get a red heifer and sacrifice her. So as he does that Jacob is lamenting the hold that these small household gods, remember that Rachel brought with her on the trip, that even though they've been buried and left behind, that the gods still have a hold of their hearts. This way of doing things according to our own understanding so maybe we can control life in God. He laments this and he says this in an encouragement to his family to trust God who he only knows by the name the fear. The unclean blood, Jacob speaking, no longer clung to our hands, but the small gods still clung to our hearts. They clung with silver fingers and fingerless hands of clay and baked and wood. Like rats, the gods gibbered in our hearts about the rich gifts they have for giving to us. The gods give rain, the swelling udder they give, and the sweet fig, and the plump ear of grain, and the ooze of oil. They give sons. To Laban they gave cunning. They gave their names as the fear at the Jabbok River refused to give me his when I asked it. And a God named is a God summoned. The fear comes when he comes. It is the fear who summons. The gods give in return for your gifts to them. The strangled dove, the burnt ox, the first fruit. There are those who give them their firstborn even the child bound to the altar for knifing as Abraham bound Isaac till the fear of his mercy bade the urine-soaked old man unbind him. The fear gives to the empty-handed, the empty-hearted, as to me from the stone stair he gave both promise and blessing and gave them also to Isaac before me and to Abraham before Isaac. All of us wanderers only, herdsmen and planters moving with the seasons as gales of dry sand move with the wind. And in return, it is only the heart's trust that the fear asks for. Trust him, though you cannot see him, and he has no silver hand to hold. Trust him, though you have no name to call him by, though out of the black night he leaps like a stranger to cripple And bless. Do you really care for me, God? Can we trust this stranger who leaps out upon us? Could it be that his glory and our well being really are part of the same script? If only we understood his heart more clearly. This was part three in our series on the sacred romance. And that was Brent Curtis that you were listening to, speaking about God and his wild ways of romancing us. We're going to continue this series on Into the Summer.